welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here with my friend Evan Chan, distinguished engineer at Tuple Jump and a member of the Strata Plus Hadoop World Program Committee. He's also going to be speaking at Strata Plus Hadoop World San Jose this coming March. Welcome to the Data Show, Evan. Thank you, Ben. It's so, great to be here. Yeah, so you're pretty well known in the Bay Area, big data, distributed computing scene, but maybe we should start off by uh, uh, giving the audience a little bit of background about yourself. So I guess you were a com computer science major in school, is that? So actually, I was uh, electrical engineering from Stanford, but I've always been really interested in computer science and software. I think at the time that uh, I went to school, I, I really was interested, like hardware was really interesting. We wanted to build architectures and get things to work. And just the engineering aspect was really, really interesting. But then eventually I found my way back to software. And uh, you worked at VMware for many years. Yeah, I was uh, there for nine years. So what, uh, what, uh, what things did you work on? I worked on everything from the, so VMware has uh, their bread and butter is, the, uh, is their vSphere platform. And they have, it's internally uh, or actually externally called uh, ESX server is, is their basically virtualization OS, which is an offshoot of, of Red Hat. And I worked on that for a number of years. Uh, I started off in the kernel stack working on memory drivers and that kind of stuff, and eventually moved so into low migration. level stuff. Yeah, lower level stuff. Then I became interested in Python and moved into a higher higher level, like kind of like um, machine management, server management. And so I worked on Python and on the management stack for a long time, on packaging, worked with third parties, uh, Cisco's and likes, and, and, and did pretty well there. So you uh, had, uh, basically, you had basically a uh, uh, front row seat into how people were deploying infrastructure absolutely. At, at that time. So absolutely. this is so, a, yep. so uh, did you stay around at VMware long enough for when the early days of Hadoop? The early um, days of Hadoop? VMware wasn't really involved. Like, yeah, I was there for the early days of Hadoop, but I wasn't in a part of VMware that was really involved in but it. But you were, you were already aware and maybe even uh, playing around with it on the side. Yeah, I was aware of it, but um, it wasn't part of my job. So it was kind of difficult to uh, play with it. Um, as, as VMware like was only marginally aware of you know the big data movement. I, I knew Hadoop was around, but didn't really have much time to play with it. And it was really only until like after like VMware grew really big. I, I when I joined, it was less than two hundred people, and by the time I left, it was over ten thousand. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's a really incredible ride. Like I was with them through when they were purchased by EMC, and then they went through an IPO. So this, yeah, a lot of. It was a great ride, uh, but after a while, it was pretty clear that like the, the pace of innovation has slowed a lot, you know. And uh, there were a lot of people were doing really interesting things with with data. Um, there were a lot of you know web startups, so I branched out and went to Uyala, which was a web platform company. Um, they powered the likes of ESPN, for example. I think uh, actually, uh, I started. I first started hearing your name around it when you were already at Uyala. Um, yeah, for, around Cassandra. Right, so so you were active in the Cassandra community. Was that something that Uyala was using, or something that you helped Uyala use? 
Yeah, so Uyala was already using Cassandra, and they were one of the early adopters. So this of, was the early, oh man, so this must have been rough, huh? Um, yeah, it was very different. It, it was like before 1.0, and things were changing all the time. Like, and upgrades were extremely painful. It wasn't as stable back then. So it was a very different beast. But it was very clear, though, back then, I think our CTO picked Cassandra because of the community adoption. You know, that it, it was, at a time, I think it was a big Cassandra HBase debate. Maybe there still is today. <laughs> yeah, but, the community um, of Cassandra, at least back in the early days, was uh, known to be stronger. Yeah, so it, it was it was very uh, it was very active, and that was one thing um, our CEO picked technologies for uh, for the community. So we picked Cassandra and worked with worked with the Cassandra folks a lot, and and we regularly gave talks at the Cassandra Summit, and, and that's how we got into it. I, I joined the analytics team, and that was one of the first things that we studied up on. So um, so when you joined, so did you join uh, Uyala? specifically to be what we now have come to know to be a data engineer or did you kind of grow into that role? I think I grew into that role. I mean, well, no, first of all, there, was, there were no data engineers back then. There were, <laughs> like, I think that's a pretty new term, right? I think back then there were just, there were every, you know, companies like Oyala all had analytics teams. So I just joined the analytics team. To be honest, like, I didn't know that much about analytics when I joined. Uh, but it, it was a world I definitely wanted to get into and got my few very quickly because um, they had, you know, big Hadoop pipeline and they had Cassandra and all the stuff. They had, believe it or not, they, they used Ruby, MapReduce wow. um, shops. <laughs> Don't try that at home. But um, so they, so, they would so write. So these were all like, batch. So the reports were batch, batch oriented. Yeah, the reports thing. were all batch oriented. But it was it was a great way to get feed wet and to learn about all different systems, Hadoop, Cassandra, and then after after the uh, we did the batch system, we started to look at real time, and that's when we that's when I led the company and uh, really went headfirst into Scala and Kafka and 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 Storm. Oh, interesting. Because uh, I uh, I think the first time I saw you give a talk was at a Spark event. Yeah, and so uh, you were definitely one of the early people in the Cassandra community trying to make these two pieces of technology work well together. Yeah, kind of like real-time streaming. We did real-time streaming. So what version of Spark would it have been? Like 0. Um, 0. When we first looked at Spark, it was like 0. 0.7, 8. Oh, I, see, so. I was aware of the project for a long time. At the time when we looked into it, so this was after we built a real-time pipeline, and we thought, you know, we really like, this Hadoop pipeline of ours is getting pretty old. It's written in Ruby. We want to upgrade it, you know, and we want to make it faster and more real-time. And, and also, were, by way of background, Evan, I think Uyala had was had a strong need for real time reporting, right? So I mean, it, um, well, I I believe that the web video publishers at the time that Uyala was around, were, they were used to like day old reports, like twenty four hours. That's what they were used to. Right. So for them, for us to publish like Hadoop based updates in an hour or two, that was actually pretty good at the time. Right. But you know, technology moves so fast, right? So right. When we developed a prototype of the real-time products, then folks got really excited because now, for example, ESPN could see second updates, right? They so could that, see like that point, broadcasting video. Yeah, that, exactly. They, at that point, could, your staff was Kafka, Storm, and Cassandra. So it became, right, it became Kafka, Storm, you know, Scala, Cassandra. And, and, that, and that was very exciting for folks to see. But after we deployed Storm, uh, we became aware of various limitations in terms of running Storm. It was a very complex and, and more difficult to operationalize system. But you got to the point where it was in production? It was in production. Yeah, we productionized it. I actually gave a talk about Storm, and, and we hosted the Storm meetup for a while. 
But um, we, so at that time, we had a, a real-time system, which was going, it was working reasonably well. Like folks could get real-time updates on like how many concurrent viewers are watching, you know, World Cup or this kind of thing. So that was very exciting. But then we wanted to upgrade the rest of our system. You know, we, we thought about, well, maybe we can bring a whole bunch of analytics into part of real-time system. Or, so we're debating what to do. And that was when we discovered Spark. Of course, me being a Scala advocate, and having pushed the company into Scala, I think Spark was one of the big projects that I noticed. At that time, very few people had heard of it, and nobody was using it. But it seemed like it was oh, very no, no, no. There was another company. There were two companies. <laughs> one was kind of, I guess, somewhat of your competitor, Riala, Conviva. Oh, Conviva, yes, yes. Right. Of course, I, right? Yes. Yeah. You're right. Con- Con- Conviva was using it. But uh, like compared to now, very few people yeah, yeah. use it. So actually, uh, I started probably playing around with Spark around 0. 0.5. Oh, nice. Then I believe. So when did Spark streaming come? Was it 0. 0.7? That's more, Spark streaming was more like around 1.0. 1.0, okay. Yeah, yeah. That was a lot later. So then uh, by the time you rushed into Spark, uh, there was no streaming capability. So you were still using, so now your stack just got more complex. You added Spark. Yeah, so it, it's like this, right? We we added Spark, looking to replace the Hadoop stuff, but in the meantime, we we're building a separate stack. So that that was, yeah, that was fairly complex. And so, what what did Spark provide for you at that point? You know what we really saw was it was like this because um, at that time uh, we were actually initially we were more interested in fast queries. Uh, we wanted to use it to power like more complex queries to come out of dashboards. So you can think of it's kind of like this, right? We use Cassandra power dashboards. So you can quickly see a breakdown of, let's say, videos by country or by, let's say, device, right? Like whether it's Android or iOS or desktop, this kind of thing. So for simple breakdowns, Cassandra worked well. But there became a point when when customers wanted to do more complex breakdowns, such as, let's say, all the top Android devices in Europe or something like that. And as you get into more and more of those, then you see that um, it gets harder and harder to do like pre-aggregates, right? Right, right. So we were we were looking into Spark to power the more complex queries. So were uh, you guys using uh, Shark? Yeah. So so we initially looked into Shark. We actually wrote our, a lot of our own code. Basically, we we wrote a lot of what <laughs> you can think of. Like we did a whole bunch of the Spark SQL work before Spark SQL came in because it wasn't there yet, and Spark wasn't quite uh, sorry Shark wasn't quite stable yet. So we did a lot of investigation into kind of rolling our own like kind of analytics. Stack, which today would not be necessary at all. Today you would just use Spark SQL, uh, but in the early days you had to do a lot of stuff yourself. So you're you're known for making some key contributions um, in the Cassandra community, particularly around uh, making Spark and Cassandra work well together. So what maybe give our listeners a little bit of background of some of the things you've done. Sure. So I uh, DataStacks credits me uh, with inspiring them to bring Spark into Cassandra, which uh, I think they're, they're very generous about that. But uh, I think I was one of the first folks to talk about the possibility of bringing Cassandra and Spark together. And, and the vision that I saw was that Cassandra is really good for real-time updates, but what if we're able to do more analytical queries on it? Then you could combine basically a platform that is really good for real-time updates with analytics, right? So, so for, I started Evan, for, for the folks who aren't familiar with Cassandra. So how would you in, in, before your work? So how would people do uh, analytic queries on Cassandra? Ah, okay, thanks. I think that's a that's a really good point to back up a little bit, right? So so Apache Cassandra for folks that aren't familiar with it, 
is what is called a NoSQL distributed database. You, you, you can think of it as a hash map, right? It's a big, some people think of it as a distributed hash map. It's a little bit more than that, but essentially you have keys that are spread out throughout the cluster. And so it's really good for if you're reading a lot of values um, in parallel, right? And writing new values in. Usually what you would do is you would write, you would pre-aggregate a whole bunch of values and write them in. If you wanted to read a lot of data at once from Cassandra, there are several things you could do. You could use an input format in Hadoop and you would then read over all this data. That's not very fast. So what some people did is they would write specialized input formats. Like I, I wrote one back in the day that would read directly from files and disk that Cassandra has and things like that. But basically, what that's what people would do. They would write MapReduce jobs. And it, it's kind of a s- slow and somewhat painful process. There are some things that people could do with Hive. There are some integrations uh, that DataSX had. So people could, in theory, run some things like that. So then, uh, so then you, you, and, you and a bunch of people ended up building what? So what we started building, well, basically, what I showed people how to do was to connect uh, Spark to Cassandra. And I showed that like you could use, at the, at the time, there was no Yeezy connector project, right? So then, uh, basically, we showed people how to, there's various ways you could use Hadoop Info Format to scan tables, you could use, but there's a much easier way you could, in Spark, uh, basically parallelize your queries and read them and read a whole bunch of rows uh, from Cassandra itself. So I, I showed that you could do this very easily using Spark um, without, like the sort of input format isn't appropriate for a lot of people for various reasons, right? You might not want to scan your whole table. So I showed people that it was easy to build this themselves. At the same time, TupleJump built a Cassandra connector that was based on input format and other things that made it a lot easier for people to connect to Spark. Uh, from that point on, you know, we DataStack started the uh, Cassandra Spark Connector project that built on top of all the previous work and made it easy to connect with, you know, especially the newer versions of Spark with data frames and all this stuff. So you could load Cassandra roles into RDD. And so, so this kind of, it, it's like a formalization of all the previous work that we did and makes it very easy to load it into Spark and use it from Scala. And then now you can load it as data frames. So it, it's been a long history and, you know, a lot of evolution. Basically, the open source community, like, Building on, on top of each other and helping each other out, which is really great, I think. So the uh, so one of the typical uh, combinations people use for real time processing and real time applications is Kafka, right? So use yep. Kafka to ingest uh, data and then process it with Spark streaming and then land it in Cassandra. But recently, you, you and your team at TupleJump announced a new. Is it a database? Is it fair to call it a database? Yeah, I think you can call it it. You can definitely call it a database. Called uh, Philo DB. So yep. for, first of all, let's start with uh, what is Philo? Sure. So um, at a high level, uh, Philo DB, I think that some readers might be familiar with uh, the likes of like uh, Vertica, for example. So Philo DB is an analytical database uh, like Vertica. It is a distributed columnar analytical database. And let me unpack that a little bit. It's distributed, meaning that just like Cassandra, it runs on multiple nodes. And so you can spread out and partition your data very easily and query it as a single entity. And it is columnar, meaning that I guess I have to be aware of uh, who knows what, but uh, it stores your data in a format that makes it very fast for analytical queries. And what do I mean by that? Uh, that means uh, you might run, uh, you might want to find out, for example, the top top products that are selling in my department for month X. And it, it, for queries that are typically shows up in 
uh, business reporting. These, these kind of queries uh, would benefit greatly from uh, FellowDB. So then uh, the idea here is that uh, I guess there are distributed analytical databases that are that use columnar storage. But so why why the need to build another one? Uh, so I'll uh, describe kind of the um, the landscape a little bit. Okay. Um, there are analytical databases, some of which are um, distributed. Most of these, though, uh, today are closed source and are commercial. For example, you have the uh, Verticas and the um, Teradatas. There are a few that are um, open source, but not widely used, uh, such as MonoDB. And those are usually not really distributed. And then in terms of analytical databases that are open source today, there really are like very few to none. But most people think of Hadoop. And for example, most folks have heard of Parquet, and they store files in Parquet. Right. A lot of folks think of Hadoop as, a, as the open source database. This is pretty much the, um, the modern analytical database that people think of. I would argue, though, that this is not really a database, because files on disk, they're great when you want to store a whole bunch of static data. All my inventory from last month is an example, right? Um, but it's not great in the sense, for example, for events or streaming data, it's actually fairly hard to work with, right? You need to ingest data. You need to make sure that you might need to deduplicate your data. And with files, because it's a file API, you can usually only lay out your files a certain way. And it's very clunky to work with compared to a what you think of as a real database API, which is I can insert data using a primary key. So the big difference... So this is kind of uh, brings you back to kind of a more relational. Yeah, so you can think of that. Um, basically, PhiloDB fills in what I see as a missing hole in today's uh, big data landscape. You have NoSQL databases like Cassandra that gives you a, an insert, kind of like a relational API in a sense that I can insert with a primary key and it gets distributed, um, but they are not fast for querying. And you can pretty much say the same thing about HBase. You have Hadoop, which is open source and distributed and has great analytical tools, but it doesn't, Hadoop files don't really work well for streaming. So the goal of FileDB is to bring together those two worlds so that you can easily stream a lot of data in. You can take your time series, your event data, and stream it in and still get you know, very fast analytical performance. Well, speaking of time series and event data, uh, there are data stores that are positioning or are positioned for to uh, store that type of data, right? So here I'm thinking in terms of uh, things like, I guess, InfluxDB. Yes, InfluxDB, yes. Um, and more recently, Kudu, and to some extent, maybe even Druid. Uh, uh, yes, yes. So there are uh, options in there. So you said, you kind of mentioned a couple of things there. One is uh, this notion that you're going to stream events in, so kind of in a real-time fashion. But on the other hand, PhiloDB strikes me as more of a less of an OLTP system, but more of an OLAP system, right? Yeah, that's right. It's an OLAP system. It's, it's so kind it's of like a streaming OLAP. Out. It's like a streaming OLAP, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, then, so then uh, there are data stores that uh, position themselves for the time series and event world. So, but I I guess I imagine one, you're probably support more of the traditional uh, relational tools and concepts like SQL. 
Right. So, so one big difference is that, yeah, FellowDB supports uh, SQL to Spark. So anything that you can do to Spark and SQL, like oh, yeah, yeah. joins let's, and let's things back like that. So what's the relationship yeah. between PhiloDB and Cassandra on the one hand and Spark on the other? Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. We, we should have gone over that from the beginning. So PhiloDB is built on Spark and Cassandra. So basically, uh, today we, we rely on Cassandra for, to distribute your storage. And because Cassandra is such a good storage engine, you can... It's very robust and will even replicate your data across data centers. So we want to take advantage of that, uh, plus give you the best of what Spark has. So your data is stored very robustly in Cassandra, and you can use all the power of Apache Spark uh, in FellowDB to query your data, including SQL, MLlib for machine learning, graph, um, all the goodies, right? So basically the storage and persistence layer is Cassandra, but it's laid out in, in columns. Right, exactly. And then uh, sitting on top of that kind of your access layer is Spark SQL and, and, and basically anything Spark. So anything Spark, you can connect a blow to it. Um, you can run traditional SQL queries. Um, I would say most um, data stores for time series aren't like that, although um, it is true that Influx does have an SQL layer, but um, I, I don't think Influx is designed with the same kind of analysis in mind. Well, uh, I think with because you're built on top of Spark, you can use MLlib and uh, other things. So what's the relationship between PhiloDB and uh, Spark data frame? So PhiloDB relies on Spark data frames. Basically, we will read data as a data frame. Uh, so you can you know, use a schema to store data, and it will get read out as a data frame, and you can use all the tools for data frames to read, as well as write. So you, if you have a data frame in Spark, for example, like if you turn your Spark streaming, uh, RDDs into data frames, then you can easily ingest it into PhiloDB. So I imagine you have some early users of PhiloDB. So what are some of the use cases? The use cases that I've seen, they, there's actually a, a range. So there are definitely folks interested in using it for traditional time series, different kinds of data, or time series slash machine data-like things. But then there are also folks that you know, are interested in, you know, I have a bunch of data in a data warehouse. Can I use this to, you know, Cassandra looks like a great platform. Can I use this to replace my data warehouse type kind of, kind of things, like more traditional OLAP use cases? So it's really some kind of, it's really in a way Spark SQL on Cassandra. Yeah, you can think of that, like fast Spark SQL on Cassandra. And, and so, so one of the things about time series and streaming, right? So... I think one of the applications that uh, gets cited a lot is IoT and uh, yeah, actually just yeah. coming back from Singapore, kind of uh, smart cities. Um, but here, you're really not talking about a transactional system, right? Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a transactional system in the sense that it's, it's not designed for like, you know, very heavy, you know, let me do lots of concurrent updates and I'm going to have a lot of like parallel reads kind of thing. We, we do support... Or I think we will support, uh, you know, plan to support access patterns such as, you know, I, I want to read out one time series. I want to read out different kind of time series. Um, but what, what I mean by transactional is that it's not designed for like lots of updates on individual records. So, what was the motivation for building PhiloDB? Was it some, as you described it, you just looked at the landscape and and realized that there's a there's a opportunity or a gap here, or was this a system you actually had a need for and, and wanted to use? 
I think it's both. I think one is looking at the landscape and realizing that there isn't anything. But I think it was also a need that at some previous companies that we're just seeing, you know, there, there's really a need for something that allows you to do queries very quickly and interactively, uh, but still work with the most recent data. And some more recent use cases that really motivated this was around processing such as geospatial processing, where you commonly need to do data annotation. Uh, for example, I have a location column right? Let's say it is IoT or something else, and I have positions and coordinates. Oftentimes, you need to annotate this data and take the position and say map it to zip codes and, and other kinds of um, things like that. And I, I saw an opportunity to use column storage for it, but, but just nothing that allowed me to take advantage of it very easily. So things like computer columns, this kind of thing. So, so uh, there's kind of this trend for... for uh... I suppose distributed uh, systems or uh, engines to go beyond being being just one specialized system. So this notion of hybrid systems, right? So hmm. so there are some systems that uh, are good at both search and SQL, or some systems like Spark that can do both real time and batch. Yep. Yep. And yep. There's now some systems can can do some of what an OLTP system can do and some of what an OLAP system can do. So, for example, MemSQL. Yeah. It can yeah. fully support transactions, but now they have columnar storage as well as rows, so now they can do analysis as well. So, I guess uh, in, in your situation, Cassandra would still be kind of the uh, transactional system and then PhiloDB will be the analytic system. But then since you you rely on Cassandra. You can co co locate or coexist in the same cluster as Cassandra. Exactly. You know, I think one of the big. Uh, it is very interesting that you brought up the point. There's a lot of hybrid systems, and it seems like more and more folks. I think one of the themes is trying to make things easier. Yeah. So if you look yeah, at yeah, the yeah. recent trends, like for this term, the lambda architecture has gone a lot of buzz. The idea that it's dead I want now, to isn't it? I guess it's becoming dead. That's <laughs> that's what. Um, well, I don't know because it's hard to know how fast. On the one hand, like those of us that are at the forefront, yeah, will say that it's dead. But then I think that there's more people that are not so much at the forefront of the curve, or or like just starting to implement these things, right? So um, I think it might live for longer than you think. So for PhiloDB, Evan, uh, if if someone is already a Cassandra user and right. a Spark user, I imagine. To get to the point where you can use PhiloDB, it's probably not too bad, right? No, it's, it's very easy. And in fact, one of our core message, uh, one of our core messages is: Look, you already have Spark and Cassandra. You you ingest real-time data. Now you're thinking about how to add analytics to it. You don't have to set up the whole complex stack involving Hadoop and a lot of extra stuff. You can simplify your stack a lot and just use what we call the SMAC stack, the Kafka, Cassandra, Spark stack, to do both real-time ingestion and OLTPs type stuff, as well as analytics. And, and I think that's quite compelling for you know, a whole bunch of companies. So obviously, databases take uh, a while to mature yeah. and uh, to iron out the kinks. And um, so what, what's the state of PhiloDB? Would you call, so is it an actual release, or is it beta, or what's the situation? I would say that it's in beta. We are ironing out uh, kinks and trying to ingest data and, and trying to get you know real use cases so it's been uh, so you announced this at the Cassandra summit in September so what's the f reception and feedback so far well I think we've gotten a lot of interest in it I think there's definitely a lot of uh, interest in it especially from the Cassandra community um, haven't really 
talked about it much outside of the Cassandra and, and communities. So, you know, looking forward to uh, broadcasting this out further. So sure. I guess at and, some point you're going to have to think about uh, enterprise features as well, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Security, whatever, governance, access control. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we've gotten uh, some of those uh, requests, you know, so so I think, you know, it's just a matter of prioritizing. But one thing that I definitely want to emphasize is that um, this is this is something that we want to keep as an active open source project. So just, uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why, like, we wanted to open this up a bit earlier in the development cycle. We want to uh, involve the community and, and push it forward as a community project. So what uh, model of open source? Is it going to be kind of GitHub or Apache or... Um, I mean, the ultimate destination, uh, I mean, it is, it, it is GitHub right now. You can find a repo at github.com slash tuplejump slash philodb. And I, I think, you know, we'll probably debate that Apache thing uh, as we go along. So now then, uh, if you're looking at building a uh, uh, real-time application that involves a lot of events or time series, your stack is going to look like Kafka, Spark, into Cassandra and uh, with PhiloDB. Yeah, so that that, that would be something uh, definitely hope folks will consider. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I wanted to uh, kind of end this by, uh, since you're around, to talk a little bit about the bit broader big data uh, <laughs> right. uh, space. So you're early user of Spark and you've used it now for a while and uh, so are you surprised by where Spark has, has gone since uh, the early days? Because like me, you were an enthusiastic, maybe kind of too enthusiastic right, right, in the right. beginning, right? So. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely been very surprising to me how, how much adoption Spark has gotten that, um, you know, basically Spark has taken over, you know, a lot of conferences and <laughs> um, yeah, on the, on the stre- on the streaming side, I think it's fair to say that Spark streaming is probably one of the more popular, if not the most popular, distributed streaming right. network at this point, right? So it used to be Storm, but Spark Streaming probably has survived Storm by Yeah, I'm pretty sure it has, at least in terms of uh, buzz and interest in community and, yeah. Yeah, so, but, it's... But uh, you're also, you were also early on Scala. Yes. Right? Well, I guess, um, I don't know if it was really that early. I, I think it was around, you know, 2010 when I discovered it, and some folks have been using it for a lot longer than that, but... Um, maybe early-ish. By the way, is PhiloDB written in Scala? Yeah, PhiloDB is written in Scala. It uses the TypeSafe stack. So that's one of the things that I think will make it easier for folks to jump in and contribute. Okay, so then, uh, but then uh, you rely on uh, Spark SQL and the Catalyst Optimizer and all of these things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We do rely on all those things. Um, um, yep. So cloud computing. Yep. Um, it seems like it's uh, this, this time around, this trend is unstoppable. Right, so yeah. all the major cloud providers keep uh, reporting earnings and revenue that are just growing like gangbusters. Not just Amazon, but Google and Microsoft as well, and even IBM. Right. Um, yep. So, what what's you, what are your thoughts in terms of uh, cloud computing? Well, it's such a big landscape now. You know, it, it's I've been on both sides of the fence, like folks that have done everything in house, things that run their own data centers and the cloud, and as well as run everything in the, cl- in the cloud. It seems to me that uh, today, if you're starting fresh, if you're a startup just looking to build up something, it seems like there's no reason not to 
take every advantage of everything that Amazon has because you can build your whole stack, you know, from your database, your streaming workflow. You know, you can run everything on Amazon or Google Cloud with the data flow. It, it's become basically, I, I think the industry is transitioning from you have to build a lot of things yourself to more of a pick and choose, like I'm going to go and see what services I can assemble, right? And kind of integrate all of them. And it may not even be services. You might, you can still use some of the things you want to use, like Spark, right? So true, true. All, they all support Spark, for example. True, yes. Yeah. So I imagine... Uh, e- uh, even tuple, uh, even uh, PhiloDB will somehow appear at, in uh, some of these cloud providers at some point, right? That would be great. <laughs> um, I mean, definitely uh, making it hosted would make it easy for folks. Uh, on the other hand, like if you look at the cloud services, for example, hosted Cassandra is just starting to appear. You don't see it that much, right? So what you see is a lot of Amazon, Google. Hosted, Cassand- Amazon. hosted Cassandra, that would be Dynamo. <laughs> yeah, it's, yes, it is, but it's not quite the same, you know. Yeah. Like, uh, so it's funny because most or, of the or big table, right? So yeah, or big table. So on the one hand, maybe for a lot of applications, people don't care; they can just use you know whatever API. But on the other hand, if I'm writing my application to Dynamo, that means that I'm tied to Amazon, right? Right. So right. right. So they need to come. Up, the APIs are what lock you in ultimately. Exactly. Yeah, and. Uh, and the surface areas of these APIs are so wide now that uh, it's hard to really be really portable from one to the other. Well, the API and more importantly, your data, right? So once your data is on Dynamo, I'm not going to be migrating it that easily. <laughs> so, um, you know, with, with more and more companies uh, using the cloud, not just startups, but even enterprises. And I, I think, you know, I mean, at this point in history, it's not, it's not the case that enterprises are 100% in the cloud, but I think uh, they're definitely not zero yeah, percent in the absolutely. cloud, right? So, um, so this has implications in terms of engineers, right? So in terms of the kind of yes. engineering skills that the people uh, in the future may want to brush up on. So, and also not just part of it is just the tooling is different and the the things you have to know are different, but. I think also, Evan, the, the way you architect applications in the cloud is a little different, right? Yeah, Ben, I think, um, I think that's a really good point. So I think in the old days, um, folks didn't have to think about, uh, I think the way you think about distributed computing uh, becomes very different. You know, when everything is in the cloud, like reliability and making things work, on, on the one hand, you know, like some, in terms of individual services, for example, let's say I use Amazon Dynamo, then they take care of a whole bunch of, like, you know, running operations for me, right? So I don't, I no longer need uh, an ops team dedicated to running the database, um, or not as many people, which is good. On the other hand, when everything's in the cloud, you have to think about reliability, you know, that much more, you know, because the chance of things failing in Amazon, you know, and the more and more things that you use that are distributed, like within clouds and amongst clouds, like um, you have to think about distributed systems and unreliable distributed systems a lot more. Yeah, and I think also just. Uh, if you look at the way things are set up, right? So you may have your data in an object store like S3. Yep. Uh, whereas on-prem, you have your data on a cluster and your cluster might be fixed, right? So this is my yeah. Hadoop cluster. This is my Cassandra cluster. In the cloud, you'll have your data in S3 and then, okay, I need to do uh, a calculation. So let me fire up a cluster. Yep. And then I'll shut that cluster down. I need to do another task. Let's fire up another cluster. Yeah. You know, so the clusters are aren't forever. 
No, they aren't forever. But in some ways, that's good. It, well, one, it forces folks to build more robust systems. But the other thing is that uh, when you think about testing, and especially like a lot of times companies have, say, a dev cluster, a, a staging cluster, a production cluster. A lot of times, like, you know, you want to spin up things for tests, like, say, performance. And with cloud, it becomes much easier. Like, I don't, like, you know, with data centers, it's, you often can't find a space to do performance tests. And with, with a cloud provider, I can just spin up a cluster. Yeah, and then you can you can also do kind of one-off projects. Like if you want to do some uh, massive machine learning, right, 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 right. right. Um, but on the other hand, I think Evan, one of the things that people forget is the cloud isn't cheap either, right? So you have no, to, no, that's right. You have to know that's what right. you're doing on S3 and EC2, otherwise that bill is going to shock you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, you can't yeah, just. I guess not. you can't run an engineering organization where it's wild, wild west, and people can just fire up clusters at will, right? Yeah, I, I think that's, I imagine that's probably still a pretty big reason for folks to want to have their own clusters is costs. Because you hear about folks, uh, I forget the big names, right, that moved from the cloud back to their own data centers. So you started at, at uh, VMware, the, the way you described it, doing low-level stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I've always kind of uh, uh, asked uh, people that I uh, uh, respect and talk to this question, so how much should uh, data scientists and data engineers pay attention to hardware trends? Because it seems like uh, now hardware is, you know, a little more important in, in some ways, right? So people are using GPUs. Yep, there's yep, uh, yep. there's uh, people who are looking into CPU caching, right? Even Project Tungsten of Spark. Yep. Um, and then you've got the next generation uh, SSDs, the non-volatile RAM. So do you yourself pay attention to hardware? Um, vaguely, I probably don't pay attention as much as I should, but <laughs> I, I would say though that I think background in um, hardware and, and especially in computer architecture is really, really useful, especially if you think about data. I mean, did you know that most of the framework for distributed computing like Hadoop, at least the open source ones, is still much, much less efficient than a lot of software that's been designed to run on a single node? Right. right. So, so there's a lot of, especially in terms of performance. Performance. There's a lot more that we can get out of hardware that, and it's, it's really helpful to be aware of it. Like you see more and more of a trend, especially amongst JVM systems like Spark, to do to do things off heat, right? Right. And to be efficient in memory usage, um, because they're finding that um, as we as disks get faster, then suddenly memory bandwidth becomes more and more precious, right? And how we use things. So knowing what things are cache friendly, knowing how caches work, I, I think that's coming back now. You know, it's becoming more and more important. Yeah, people are definitely talking more about it, right? Yeah, so uh, I think that's a good thing to have background yeah, on. Yeah, a few years ago, there, uh, I, there were some companies who were doing uh, CPU caching, and I thought, wow, this is kind of crazy, and uh, mm. uh, this is probably a one-off. But then more and more people started doing it. Yeah. So anyway, so this has been great, Evan. We'll make sure to place links on the accompanying uh, radar article to this episode so that the listeners can uh, follow the progress of PhiloDB. Absolutely, Ben. It was fantastic talking to you. You can follow Evan Chan on Twitter at Evan F. Chan. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.